Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Ben Clemmer. And I'm Steven Stahoski. I'm sure you're wondering why I called you today. You see, today we have a very serious discussion. A very serious discussion. A discussion of business. A discussion of family. A discussion of the family. Or five families, as the case may be. Welcome to Cinematic Icons, a meeting of the five families. I hope you both brushed up on your Italian, because uh, we're going to take a look at one of the most iconically American forms of cinema of the past half century. The gangster movie. Ah, Madonna, I'm so ready. (laughs) Here endeth the lesson. Or beginneth the lesson. Anything that you think even remotely resembles a gangster movie that you haven't seen with the direction oh, yeah. we're about to go in. A tried and true pop culture staple is the top five list. Thank you, High Fidelity. While we'll be using the number five a lot as we discuss the image of a meeting of the five families, we won't be ranking our group. It's a round table. There's no head. Who or what are the five at the table? Other honorable mentions that don't make the cut for the table could absolutely still be in the conversation and in the room. And we'll try to give everyone their time. If there are clear names attached to the seats of the table, we'll talk about their resumes. I almost feel like we're on a tournament selection committee by doing this because inevitably there will be more controversy surrounding our fourth and our fifth available seats. Who's fifth? Who's sixth? Who's in and who's out? Our top five categories are top five actors. Top five characters, top five directors, top five movies, and top five scenes. Well, yeah, let's just go ahead and jump into our top five scenes. Do we want to go just round table here, round robin? I think when it comes to the direction that we're going to take with this conversation, I guess let's maybe establish what movies are represented with our scenes and then kind of run through them one by one. Because I know for the ones that I wrote down, I've got multiple... (laughs) pulls from both of the godfather films i've got a couple pulls from the untouchables a couple from goodfellas and one from donnie brasco and how about you steven goodfellas godfather 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 (laughs) and then uh donnie brasco yeah that's fair i have donnie brasco godfather godfather goodfellas and i have a scene from the departed in my top five okay so this sets up a lot of the other categories we want to talk about, which is why I wanted to start here. And just given the number of times the title was said, it sounds like we're starting with the Godfather films. The Godfather of the genre, so to speak. 
This is a good opportunity for me to mention the tropes because one of them leads straight into the first scene. When we were preparing for this, I found uh, some videos uh, from a YouTuber with a channel called Eyebrow Cinema. I had some wonderful breakdowns of gangster films. In terms of elements in them, there were four that were discussed. And there was a fifth that he mentioned that he didn't make as one of the categories, but I think also is an element to consider. So maybe we'd have five categories. It's got to be a lot of lists of five. And that was the films focus on immigrants from the lower class. The films have battles against the cops and rival gangs. The gangster films uh, showcase the gang as a boys club. And there's definitely a way in which female characters are ignored or mistreated or, or otherwise. You also have loyalty to a brotherhood, family, their people. This man is my friend. This man is our friend. And the other element that comes up a lot with gangster films is timeline. They cover a large span, usually perhaps the entire life of a person, rather than potentially being focused on an individual moment or like a heist, like a lot of crime films are. The wide timeline, the long timeline is one way that gangster films kind of separate themselves. And that first category of immigrants from the lower class is a great lead into, I believe in America and the iconic opening sequence from the first Godfather film. The wedding. Yeah. That's in my the, top five. The wedding. Too. Yeah. Yep. Wedding is that's a, that's all of a, us have that down. Yeah. That's a, that's a great scene. I don't know if it, it didn't actually quite make my top five list uh, oh. from the Godfather at the very least, but I, I like the wedding scene. I also really, really like Luca Brasi as his character was a professional wrestler and was so starstruck of Brando that all of his stuttering and inability to remember what he's supposed to say was actually that actor's inability to remember what he was supposed to say while being in the same room as Marlon Brando. That's a brilliant scene. Almost 700 extras in that scene alone. It's a spectacle of an opening. Yeah, and if you know any real Italians, it's also pretty true to life. What I love about it is it it sets up all of your principal characters so well. Just in this basic introductory scene, you get to know, okay, this is what Michael is like, this is what Vito is like, this is what Sonny is like. Fredo's kind of bumbling around drunk in the background. Which is Fredo. Yeah. And you have one uh, element, and this is true of this scene as well as, uh, I think, at least a, well, a couple uh, that will come up as we talk about both The Godfather Part 1 and Godfather Part 2, is you have the way that the scene is set up in the original film, and then you get its reflection in the sequel. Because with the wedding and all the scenes in Vito's office at the beginning of The Godfather, it is bright daylight and a joyous celebration for the wedding and it is dark surroundings Vito and his business and his operation and the two are very separate but in the sequel when we begin with the christening and, and this was something that eyebrow cinema talked about and it was a very very good point that just showing the the contrast by the time Michael is running the family there is no separation between the two I mean he's still in a, an office but light is streaming in and then just the way that the family has been impacted and corrupted and you see the contrast in the way that who's still here who's gone who's here but their life has been changed forever there's just such a wonderful way that the fact that that scene in the beginning of the first godfather film sets up all those characters as well as it does and then later can serve as a way to see oh just how far we've gotten by the time you get to the second film true and I love it too because starting with a wedding is intimate and like it draws you in as a viewer and makes you feel almost like you're part of this family. Like it's a familial event, which is very important to the Corleones and their culture in general. And so you're brought in and it immediately gets you on the side of all of your protagonists for the movie. I actually had the spaghetti scene ranked higher. And by the spaghetti scene, I mean where Clemenza 
teaches Michael to make spaghetti. What I love about that scene is knowing some of the background to the movie. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola used to have rehearsals before shooting started where he would ask all of the main actors of the film to sit down to a family dinner as their character uh, and completely improvise everything that would happen at dinner. So I imagine that this this scene ended up in the in the film because Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola were at those dinners and they they heard some of these interactions. And so this this interaction between Michael and Sonny and some of the other guys and Clemenza, it shows you that that brotherhood box. You get that the brotherhood, you get the family, uh, and then Michael gets a call from Kay uh, in the middle of the scene. And there's a lot going on and, and nothing is as dark as things are going to get. It's one of the last moments of lightness and brevity before you get to uh, the meeting with Salazzo and Michael having to go to Sicily and Sonny getting blown away and everything. Everything just kind of goes downhill from there. It made my top five list. It's not my favorite scene, but it is one of my favorites, especially since we just had to start with Godfather. Uh, it, it is ingrained in my brain. That leads into one of my other picks, which is the spaghetti scene from Godfather Part 2, which is... In Vito's part of the story, when he is having dinner with Tessio and Clemenza at his home and his wife's cooking spaghetti for them, and they stole something and Don Finucci found out about it, and he's like, okay, you owe me a kickback, so each of you got to pay me like $30 or else I'm going to kill you. And when they're having spaghetti, Vito's like, you give me five and you give me five and I'll take care of Don Finucci. And I love it because like that's the moment when he becomes like the leader of their group. That's when he becomes the godfather essentially cuz they used to be like a partnership of equals but like from that point on he's clearly the man in charge. He's calling all the shots, he's making all the deals. It's just fun. I loved uh, the second godfather because De Niro got turned down for a role in the first one. He actually auditioned for the first godfather as Sonny and he got turned down and James Can got the role. And then were actually worked out well because Al Pacino was able to get out of his role in the gang that couldn't shoot straight. De Niro ended up in that film instead and then was available to do Godfather 2. When it comes to, and again, we kind of strike that contrast, the fact that, again, both those films have spaghetti scenes. With the first one, uh, going back to what you mentioned, Stephen, with uh, when Clemenza is making the spaghetti, I think in the original script, the direction was just, Clemenza is browning sausage and Richard Castellano crossed that out and either wrote a note or said fry gangsters don't brown (laughs) (laughs) and the improvisation element of again the actors just improvising off of each other and that kind of being a way that in in some cases uh, that Coppola could thin the herd and kind of figure out okay you're right for this part or you're going to get this role and uh, one actor who I've seen talk about that it was for a completely different uh, project of Coppola's in the late 70s but it was Scott Glenn and it was during the making of Apocalypse Now mm. and he's auditioning for a role as a soldier and the improvisational direction they get is you're all in a boat flowing down the river and you're arguing about who should be Playboy's Playmate of the Year or something like that and so all these actors start going into this argument start arguing for this girl or that girl or whatever And Glenn is just sitting there and he's just rolling his eyes and he's not doing much beyond that. And he gets asked, why aren't you contributing or or saying anything during this improvisation? And he just says, well, we're actually soldiers in a boat going down this river and the other guys are being that loud. That's how we're going to get a mortar right in the center of our hole. (laughs) None of the other actors were kept. Glenn winds up getting cast. 
and later on actually saved Coppola's life because for, I think, scouting out or some sort of other part of the production, he was on a boat uh, with a group of others that was tied off and it started drifting and Glenn saw the line and realized, okay, when that goes taut, it's going to pull and then it's going to pull it under. And so as soon as it started to go, he started running and got there and pulled out his knife. He'd actually been in the military prior to being in the movie, cut the line and the boat was safe, at which point Coppola basically came back and said to him, so where would you like to be in the movie? <laughs> what part could I give you? And he winds up playing Colby there at the end of yeah. Apocalypse Now. Coppola was was an interesting choice for The Godfather. We can get into like a, a deep dive Godfather at some point. But it is maybe a good time to mention that Paramount didn't want him for the, the Godfather movie, the first one. It, he was such an interesting director because he kept doing things that the studio didn't want. The studio didn't want Al Pacino. And Coppola said, no, I, I want Al Pacino. The studio didn't want James Caan and uh, play Sonny. Um, actually, my, my second favorite, my second top-ranked scene in general involves Sonny. And it's actually when he flies into a rage, jumps in the car, and goes after his brother-in-law to beat the crap out of him yet again. And he gets ambushed at the toll booth. I think even though there's not a ton of James Caan footage in that scene where he gets the phone call loses his crap and goes i think you see the most of Sonny's character in that scene and i i really wish that james can had gotten more in the final cut of the movie but coppola wanted can coppola wanted marlon brando in fact one of the producers of the movie said that marlon brando would never be in a paramount film but what Coppola wanted, he eventually got, and it turned into one of the, the one of the top movies, if not one of the one of our top scenes contenders. I'm assuming we collectively still have other entries to go forward with. The, yeah, we even, even the first Godfather film. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> and I know uh, for me, one of mine is just uh, the short scene, but the discovery of the horse head in the bed is just iconic. Yeah, you, you can't talk about Godfather and not talk about the actual horse head and the amount of the amount of. <laughs> Coppola got for that scene the rest of my selections for the film are, are, are third act when you have the baptism and the corresponding hits uh, and just the way that that is all played out and uh, the background of the swelling organ music and just and just the tactical nature of it for Michael Corleone as he ascends and becomes the godfather and, and then the final closing of the door in Kay's face that's also a, an iconic image from the movie I mean I mean it's just whether it's by quotes or by the scenes that enter your brain and will never leave. Mm. Godfather has them in abundance. Yep, Godfather does. Um, if I were, to, if I, if I have the my top scene being the baptism scenes, and I, I really like that scene mostly because I I know the behind the scenes work that went into it. The the actors involved in that shooting those scenes because it's really kind of like a string of scenes, but they were just told here's who you need to get. Get him. Because Coppola was running really, really low on his clock for how much time he could continue shooting. And so the actors got a chance to really showcase how much they had gotten into their character by the way that they eliminated their man. In fact, Clemenza, his actor chose that shotgun from the prop table and then went on to set. I think that's number one for as far as mob, mob movie scenes go. I love the baptism scene. It is yeah, it's gold. I mean, th it's that, absolute gold. That montage. It, if we do wind up with only one from The Godfather in our final top five list, I suspect we'll wind up with more. But if we do just wind up with one, it's probably that one. 
Yeah, I, I mean, that's the most iconic one from the movie. I mean, there's a reason it's, you know, referenced and parodied so many times in films because it it set like a landmark for what you could do. Are we ready to move on to part two? Moving, yeah, moving away from The Godfather. To The Godfather part two. Oh, geez, to The Godfather <laughs> part two, man. It just feels like Coppola went back and had found footage from Ellis Island. I mean, Vito's entire arrival at the beginning of the movie and just the, the setting the way every it just establishing everything that we're going to see from there taking us back in time all the way up to the the ending with him looking out the window after being processed and quarantined uh, it just in so many ways and again encapsulates that idea of again the the, the rise of poor immigrants that is associated with the, the mobster genre it might be the best example of it that's a that's a brilliant scene it, i think it's down near number 4 on my list um, so I've hit one, two, I've hit one, three, and four. So I've got two that are not from The Godfather, just so everybody is aware. I think that one's at number four. And I love that one, yes, because it is actually surprisingly historically accurate to what thousands and thousands and thousands of American immigrants went through as they arrived and came through Ellis Island, including the quarantining, which uh, never thought we'd use that word for something other than 2020, but here we are. Still rings true, or at least is relatable in ways that it wasn't prior. <laughs> That's a wonderful example of what we hear a lot with media is the media didn't change, you did. And mm-hmm. your experience of watching it mm-hmm. changes as you age and as your experience changes. The other example, again, we kind of, Caleb, you said it perfectly, was the, uh, I put down just the killing of Finucci. And just Vito stalking across the rooftops until he's finally able to get to him, firing the shots, the cloth bursting into flame. I mean, there's just so many amazing images in that whole sequence and it really is and again i'm going to speak to the fact that i watched a video that talks about contrasts the fact that Vito is again a young gangster in his prime coming up through the ranks making his kill stalking his prey versus michael making the killing in the restaurant in the first film in a scenario where he really has no choice and again you just see that dichotomy between father and son as the movie plays out in Vito's first kills one of the moments where that contrast is most stark for me the assassination of Finucci mirrors the baptism scene in the godfather part one they're both paced very slowly they're cutting back and forth between different action in the baptism it's the baptism and then the various assassinations in part two it's you cut between don Finucci on the street in the parade and then Vito stalking him up on the rooftops but they feel very similar to me they have like the same type of rhythm and momentum behind them i think the next movie we go to is donnie brosco because i think all three of us had something from that i don't know if we all have the same scene or various scenes and the full disclosure would be we discussed it before we got on the mics which then i think influenced all of us in that uh, i was reminded how good that movie is yeah and between caleb you're mentioning of it and my brother mentioning of it it inspired my first viewing of it very recently and oh man it's good and there are a lot of great moments here or there that I think I can maybe discuss in greater detail when we get to inclusion of actors or characters. But the sequence in the film's third act where essentially it's us or them and Sonny Black's gang and his group, including the character Lefty, who's played by Al Pacino, uh, kill the mob men that have come to kill them. It's the most graphic scene in the film by far. It's just, it's terrifying. It's messy. And just 
does everything to kind of show it, it very much is the climax of Don the Jeweler's journey as he's gone through and then comes down and one of the mom men in the group, Nikki, uh, played by Bruno Kirby, is also killed during that scene and just it's a part of Donnie Brasco's and this is also a staple of of gangster films, it's that third act spiral. Like we have reached our lowest point. Here we are. And everything from here is just playing out the falling action. Yeah, I have the basement scene. That's my that's my want my pick from Donnie Brasco. Uh, the shootout, the the death of of Nikki, um, that whole sequence, just from a standpoint of being a fan of combat, being a fan of looking at how combat is done in movies and how combat, both with firearm and with bladed weaponry, is done in movies. Uh, it's a well put together sequence. It makes sense. That is really kind of the the climax of how far Donnie can go. And it's also followed by a release of tension with the death of Nikki because in several scenes leading up to that you know that Lefty has been suspecting that there's a rat in the group and even then when I think it's Polly is the is the fourth member of the group goes back to the car to get Don the jeweler to bring him back in and you're thinking okay are they going to kill him too and they're bringing him in to help dispose of the bodies and Nikki has a line something like let's fillet this fat f- or something like that as they're going to to or to chop up the biggest guy and just as he has turned lefty caps him and at that point it's like oh lefty picked the wrong guy our protagonist is still with us and it's just one of those great ways that again you you're kind of white knuckling through the movie the first moment for that and this was where i definitely started taking notes as i'm just realizing oh there are a lot of elements of this that i like is a scene that takes place at a japanese restaurant and they are being asked to remove their shoes Donnie Brasco is wearing a wire throughout most of the movie because 85% of the film's dialogue is based off of actual tapes from a real FBI agent who was embedded in the mob. And there was an exchange where he's asked to remove his shoes and has to make an argument as to why he doesn't want to and makes his case well enough to Sonny Black, the leader of their group, played by Michael Madsen, that Madsen and the rest of the group turn on the restaurant owner and beat the tar out of him in the restaurant's bathroom before going on their way. And... Donnie Brasco has saved his own skin, but an innocent has been victimized in the process. That and then a hospital scene when Lefty's son is, is has had to have his heart restarted after a drug overdose. And, and the and the heart-to-heart that they have in that moment where you see Donnie really feeling bad for him just really works so well. Well, you guys both went for violence and intense emotion. I went for humor in Donnie Brasco because my favorite scene from that is when Donnie is back with his... FBI compatriots and they're listening to a tape and the other agents are played by Paul Giamatti and Tim Blake Nelson and they have this whole discussion about what does that forget about it that yeah, forget about it forget about that it. Italian mobsters always say like what does that mean and they go in this whole conversation where Brosco is basically like well it kind of means whatever you want it to mean like you can use it for any instance you, like you get a new car yeah, you just you, bought a new Cadillac. Ah, forget, forget about, about it. it. You you lost a lot of money on the races. Ah, forget about it. Like, it's all based, you know, just on the way you say it. But I love that scene, too, because it starts to show, like, the grain lines for Donnie. Like, there's tension between him and the other agents. He's, like, frustrated and upset. But he still has, like, a bit of camaraderie with them. But you can tell by the way he talks about and explains the culture that he's been so involved in that he's starting to be drawn in and is he going to you know switch allegiance and actually be part of the mob 
So it's humorous, but it also it, it's a good character moment for Donnie as well. Well, I think we'll probably get into a brief discussion of Donnie Brasco because it really plays on one of those tenets that you brought up at the beginning of the episode, Ben. Really plays on the loyalty idea uh, a lot. It maybe doesn't necessarily get into all of the boxes that like really like you're going through them, and I'm thinking, okay, Godfather literally checks every single one of these, but it it Donnie Brasco plays up that idea of loyalty a ton. Uh, I I'd make the case that it it check well it checks actually no I'd make the case for all five if, if I may do so just really quickly yeah I mean immigrants from the lower class when we see Lefty he is as he puts it a spoke on the wheel and stays at that level throughout the entire movie other gangsters that are younger than him get promoted past him it just he is he's known in his neighborhood and in his surroundings but beyond that. He's not moving up in the power structure at all. And you have battles against cops and gangs. We just described the the most violent scene in the entire movie. The gang is a boys club and just the way women are treated actually kind of winds up the, I mean, the relationship that's most explored in the film is the relationship between Donnie and his wife back home as he's undercover and their withdrawal and separation as he is just simply not around. And I think the original agent the movie's based on after he was embedded, I think his family was relocated after like the first nine months and he was embedded for six years. And just that again, gang is a boys club. There's no place for wives. There's no place for family. The way they're treated is reprehensible. And that loyalty and the brotherhood and the fact that it is undercut by, you know, the fact that a betrayal is probably coming at some point as Donnie continues to record and bring tapes back. And then it does show pretty much the entire timeline. We get the first meeting between Lefty and Donnie all the way to Donnie's extraction at the end of the film. We do get a large cut of timeline, even if it is not lifetime, it is still the entire time that Donnie Brasco as a mobster was alive. All right. Well, okay. We'll make a case for whether or not it gets a seat at the table later, (laughs) but you might be right. Um, Well, moving from Donnie Brasco, which is a movie based around an undercover agent, trying to get information. One of my top five scenes is from The Departed, which is a movie completely based around undercover spies and, you know, double agents. And the leader of the mob is Frank Costello, played by Jack Nicholson. And towards the end of the movie, there's this wonderful scene with him and Leonardo DiCaprio's character at the bar that they always frequent. And he calls him there because he has figured out that there is an informant in his organization and it's the I smell a f-ing rat scene. And Nicholson's character is just so unhinged and he's losing it and going crazy. He's strung out on cocaine. And just this back and forth between him and DiCaprio where he's like, I know there's a rat. Is it you? Maybe I should just kill you to be safe. And DiCaprio's character trying his best to play him off. And at first he's like, no, nah, there's probably no rat. And then he's like, well, maybe there is. Like, Maybe it is, and maybe you should just kill me. Maybe you should kill everyone and just, like, go away and leave the life. Like, why don't you? You have all this money. And Costello's like, well, it's not about the money. It's about the fact that I have power and I can do whatever I want with people. And Nicholson just plays it so well. It's it's a great scene. Nicholson is uniquely possessed of a skill to be f- freaky. Oh, yeah. Really just completely unnerving. And The Departed is a wonderful way to start into the Scorsese canon with areas that i know steven you wanted to hit pretty hard as we were going oh man yeah so my scenes from 
scenes from Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we said number one. We said so the Goodfellas scene is number two. And the Goodfellas scene that immediately comes to mind when we start talking about best scenes in a mobster movie um, is is Joe Pesci's inside joke with Ray Liotta. So you think I'm funny. And they're all in the restaurant and somebody makes a crack about Joe Pesci, who's not a big guy, who's got a temper, his character, Tommy DeVito. And he just starts going off. And Ray Liotta knew about this. Knew this was going to happen. But nobody else on the set knew that Pesci was going to go off the deep end like he does. You know, you, you think I'm funny? You think, you think I'm funny? How? I'm funny like like a clown? You think I'm funny like like a clown? How am I f***ing funny? You know, and, and, and it's... Like I'm here to amuse like you? Like I'm here to amuse you? And it's really, really uncomfortable to watch. Because all the other actors on the, in the scene, they're going, No, no, like, you know, like, you know, like you're funny. You're fun to be around. And he just keeps getting steadily more and more pissed off. What's really interesting is about that scene... Aside from Joe Pesci's performance, which is brilliant, it is based off of an actual experience Martin Scorsese had as a younger man when he was waiting tables at a bar that was frequented by actual mafiosos. And somebody said that as a waiter to one of the one of the mobsters that was seated at a table, and that mobster lost it almost in the exact way. And Scorsese relayed that story to Pesci. Pesci said to Leota, hey, let's do it. And they didn't tell anyone else on set. So De Niro's reaction, all the other mobsters' reactions in the in that scene are, are completely genuine and, and honestly kind of terrified. One last thought on this before we jump to another movie and some other scenes is the notion that there are just local spots that people are going to enjoy. And it doesn't matter whether they're gangsters or cops. And that was definitely something that was used in Heat uh, when the fact... Because in the movie, and it was based off of the real experiences that inspired the film, there is a really fancy restaurant in town. And the gangsters are there on one night of the week. And the cops are there, maybe even sitting at the same tables on different night of the week. And just the fact that, yeah, is your, if you're a young man, waiting tables, tending bar you may wind up having an interaction with the mob. When I was watching that recently, what it reminded me of, and our conversation for this episode is about movies, not TV shows, but I had not been that uncomfortable watching an Italian gangster on screen and not knowing what they are going to do next since watching Jip Rossetti in season three of Boardwalk Empire. Because as the writer for the, for I think it was Tim Van Patten put it for from Boardwalk, he can find an insult in a bouquet of roses. And so you're just watching that and thinking, okay, is he going to kill somebody? And then halfway through the film, he actually does. And we'll, we'll get more into that in a well, moment. That's or, actually my favorite scene from Goodfellas is when he finally snaps and this unhinged character that you know is going to do something violent eventually does in the bar. Refresh my memory. What does the guy say to him to get your shiner kit? Yeah. Get your shiner yes, kit. He tells, that's he tells what he sh- says. He says, get, your, get, shining get your shining kit. And then Joe Pesci, and Joe Pesci loses it. Laughs. He, takes a swig of his drink and then just says, you and then slams his drink onto his hand and they just end up, you know, beating the guy to death. Don't they stab him? Well, they, if I recall correctly, he's, they, they leave that actually, it's a false sense of security because that interaction gets diffused and you think, okay, there's not going to be any violence. And then as the bar is going to close and this guy is still there, eventually he has DeVito on one side and Conway on the other. And as DeVito approaches and he notices him, Conway grabs him and then they're both on him and 
it escalates from there. Now, now, but correct me, that is is that the same murder? Because there is one that Pe- that Pesci's character, DeVito, Tommy DeVito, does where he stabs a character seven times with a kitchen knife. That's in the car later, and it's the same guy because he's the, the same body guy. they're disposing of. And yes, because he's not dead. Yep. So interesting tidbit about that. Test audiences thought that it was too violent, so they went back and they edited out three of the visual stabs on screen, but you still hear them. You hear all seven, but you only see four of them. And I don't know why I find that amusing. I do, and it's kind of maybe horrible of me. I find it amusing because the whole thing just explodes off of this one character who is completely unhinged, even before the third act spiral into chaos. You never know what Pesci's character is going to do. The whole movie, and that's that's especially in that scene, the funny how those guys are all afraid because the character you don't know what he's going to do. He is this very violent character, and Pesci take honestly, I think, takes it a step further for Casino and the stick his head in a vice is my mm-hmm. final scene in my list because that was something that they thought was going to get cut out. Yeah, talking about getting past the ratings, and it didn't, and it probably maybe should have. Interestingly enough, Goodfellas had over three hundred. F-bombs in it. There were less than 100 in the script. Most of them are on the account of Joe Pesci. Of course. I do want to stick with Goodfellas for one more because it also has an iconic montage and the finding of the bodies as the piano instrumental from Layla plays. I, I mean, for as grandiose as the baptism is and the Godfather, the Layla montage is just strikes a similar kind of tragic aura and just the fact that we're following these really uncomfortable long shots in some cases as we're like going inside a refrigerator truck or seeing the car and then zooming in on the car and seeing the gangster and his wife are both dead and just the way that we see yeah this is Conway cleaning up the mess and getting rid of anybody who can possibly implicate him and just going from moment to moment and seeing characters that we've seen before and know yep this is this is the end of the line we have not gotten to the untouchables which is two of my scenes both the baseball bat monologue which Uh, de niro delivers to brilliant effect and just eventually circling back and forth along the table as he talks about he stands alone and part of a team 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 like all the the mobsters are agreeing nodding and, and and he picks up a baseball bat and is walking around the table and eventually he winds up behind the guy who let the post office get raided and if you were waiting for the axe to fall that is the moment strikes him multiple times kills the guy and you just have this long tracking shot from above as De Palma pulls the camera back and you see the blood spilling out onto the table from the guy just lying there on his plate it, it just terrifying wonderful image and Really, I, if I'm recalling correctly, the only time we actually see Capone kill anybody. Well, because Capone was never arrested for murder mm-hmm. or even actually racketeering or anything you'd expect an American mobster to be arrested for. Tax evasion. He was got on tax evasion. And if the man had just paid his taxes, they never would have got him. But not, And not bragged about how much money he made. Yeah, that too. <laughs> that moment is iconic. And then the other sequence would be and again, I, I think we're seeing, again, kind of climaxes of the film. I guess you, you could put this in a similar point to Donnie Brasco in the basement because there's still definitely 
tension-filled scenes that follow, and there's still definitely action to resolve. But you have the train station sequence in The Untouchables where they know they need to get the bookkeeper to be able to pin Capone on tax evasion. Earlier in the film, there were four guys in The Untouchables. Only two of them are still left, and those are the two that go to the train station uh, to capture the bookkeeper. And that whole exchange, everything that builds up to it, the fact that Ness is helping a woman get a baby carriage up several flights of stairs and Stone's final shot as the guy is threatening to kill the bookkeeper. I mean, there's just so many amazing moments. It's also that scene, like others from The Godfather or Goodfellas, when you see them get referenced or parodied, it's iconic because I think I may have actually seen the train scene in The Untouchables get parodied in the third Naked Gun film before I actually saw The Untouchables. So those are your, those are your remaining two. Those are the remaining two. I have not gone through and really narrowed mine to a top five. These were just scenes I wanted to talk about. But okay. yes, let's go ahead as you were just suggesting. All right, so yeah, I, I do have mine narrowed down to a top five. Uh, I've got the baptism scene from The Godfather is my top most favorite scene in an American mobster film. Uh, Funny How comes in from Goodfellas at number two. Uh, again, Godfather Spaghetti with Clemenza teaching Michael how to make spaghetti is number three. The basement scenes in Donnie Brasco comes in at number four. And number five is Sonny's ambush right ahead of uh, the Brian Beattie murder uh, in Gannon Goodfellas. So mine only actually spans three movies. Godfather, Goodfellas, and Donnie Brasco. And it probably would not have included Donnie Brasco had we not reminded me how good that movie was. So, Yeah, my top five I have uh, the opening the wedding of Godfather Part One is my number one. I have my number two, Goodfellas, when they, when Pesci finally snaps and murders the guy. Uh, my number three is the spaghetti scene from Godfather Part Two. My number four is the Departed. I smell a rat scene with Jack Nicholson, and then number five is the forget about it, explaining the fantastic mobster phrase from Donnie Brasco. And for mine, I think I'll actually go five to one. And given the recency with which I saw it for the first time, the basement scene in Donnie Brasco, I would also put it number five. And then from there, I mean, the at least the laughing face of Ray Liotta lives on as a meme. So the the funny scene from Goodfellas, I think, would be my number four. The train station in The Untouchables is probably number three. And again, just like the fact that the emotions of that scene are also carried by the fact that Malone has recently died and we'll more on him when we get to characters. And then, Ooh, it's really tough because the baptism is maybe more iconic, but I think, and we all kind of agreed on this, the Godfather part two is probably the better movie, but just on the merits of the scene themselves, the scenes themselves, I would probably go Ellis Island arrival at number two and the baptism at number one. Okay, so do we do we want to try to compile a, a master list? We don't even have to rank them. Just yeah, what I, five, yeah I don't the know the five that make the five that make it to the table for scenes. Do we want to do that now? Or yeah, do let's do do that? sure. Let's do in now. my opinion, it's the three movies we all have in common: Godfather, Donnie Brasco, Goodfellas. Like the scenes from those. So are, funny gets in, be, the baptism gets in, and the baptism, basement gets in, and the basement gets in. Yeah. percent. So then now here comes the fun part. What are the last two? Can we combine the two spaghetti ones? Can we call spaghetti? Spaghetti, call spaghetti Does that count? And number five, <laughs> I oh, think. Over the Ellis Island arrival? I don't I know. Mean, that, just, that is hard. That is such a perfect setup. And just the, that the, is, the level of detail is insane. The Ellis Island is more cinematic and like 
probably the better scene. I think Steven and I are just Godfather fanboys. Yeah, that's and, probably also true. Uh, and I apparently was so spaghetti fanboys spaghetti as well. Scene I didn't eat dinner before from the we first started recording. One. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't eaten dinner either. And the bad news is we've gotten through one of our four lists, and it we are 40 minutes in. Yeah, yeah I know. It's no. okay. Yep. <laughs> Um, I think from a from an artistic standpoint, the Ellis Island is going to have to beat out spaghetti. It's going to have to beat out, but in my heart, spaghetti is on the list. That's four. And then, I mean, my fifth that we have not included yet is the train station from the Untouchables. But does that beat out what were some of the other references that you guys made? Well, I had Sonny's Sonny's ambush and flying off the handle scene. James can. Yeah, that's pretty good. I like that too, but I don't know if it is better than than the Untouchables. To be quite honest with you, I love it because you you do finally kind of sort of see, you well, you, it's the end of Sonny's character, but you also kind of see the the culmination of what makes Sonny Sonny, and it's that shoot first, ask questions later, uh, mentality of Sonny. It's like that is his character. I don't know if that's actually better than the final of the Untouchables. You know, in all honesty, I might actually include the baseball over. That one's tough. Absolutely. Well, it's just. Because De Niro's performance as Capone, even though Capone doesn't have to do a lot because historically, again, he he let other people do his dirty work, that works incredibly well. But then you also have, I mean, the train station, we have definitely gotten to the point where Ness and Stone understand what they are going to have to do to actually put Capone away. And they need to get to the bookkeeper, get him out by any means necessary. And then after that, we're set up for a trial. It's as well done of a climax, probably not as significant as the baptism. I think I already mentioned this earlier. I put it right there with Donnie Brasco. It kind of serves a similar function in the film. Yeah, I'm partial to villain monologues, so I probably would lean towards the bat scene as well. I'm leaning um, towards the bat scene simply because that, that also speaks to the actual historical character of Al Capone. That's kind of sort of was his nom de guerre, Scarface, his, was was who he was recognized as. Not Scarface. The movie. the movie, but that <laughs> literally was his nickname. Al Capone was his nickname was Scarface, and he was prone to beating the crap out of people with a baseball and bat as a younger man. To be perfectly honest, I think it's the more iconic scene from the movie. I mean, the quote you said, like that's a very recognizable quote. Mm-hmm. It does more with a shorter amount of time, and while the train sequence is an excellent set piece, we've got to get a De Niro monologue in there. Yeah, and actually, if I'm correct here i mean ellis island is young is child veto it's child veto so it's the not baptism funny is focusing on leota and pesci is any even in the funny scene he's there he's got to be there i don't know I don't if he's think really, he is. is he yeah. not if is he, he or is at least there? not he's a focus not of it if he is oh, man he might not be so by virtue of again. putting in the baseball bat de niro is in our top five, in our scenes. Top five and scenes. given how many films he's in he should be. Oh, yeah. He absolutely should be. I, I like that list. I like that list. I like that. I so we've got the, the baptism, Ellis Island, the baseball bat monologue, Donnie Brasco basement scene. And the funny how. And the funny how. Goodfellas. From Goodfellas. That is a wonderful list of scenes that sets up so many of the moving parts. Do we want to go to actors and characters next? And if so, which one first? Uh, well, let's go to characters. I think. Characters, I guess. Yeah. Leaving off with funny how since we just left that. Joe Pesci. Tommy DeVito. Tommy DeVito's character. That character. You could make an argument that maybe his character is a little bit more violent and unhinged in Casino. Well, Casino, that's my Joe Pesci character pick. It is. is. Uh, Nicky Santoro. Because he's he has more screen time. He's a little more central focus. 
in the movie Casino. But yeah, he he's scarier than Tommy DeVito, which is saying a lot. Like, Nicky Santoro is a madman who will do horrific things to you. Well, and this is where the where this activity gets a little bit easier, is I think we're in agreement that we want to include a Pesci character. We'll kind of figure out which one as we go. And I think we're also all in agreement that Vito Corleone makes the list. And by saying Vito Corleone for top characters, we get, you actually get all two of actors v- that way. We get oh, yeah. all of well, Vito get Corleone. three actors that way, believe it or not. <laughs> or however many. Whoever, I mean, from the small child and then all the way. I don't know if... The, it's been long enough since I've watched Godfather Part Two. I can't remember if they had a version between Kid and very young De Niro. No. No. Okay. No, they did not. So okay. it's Kid, De Niro, Brando. All represented. Okay. Fair. And then we had another conversation where we were trying to figure out how to represent Pacino and Lefty and Donnie Brasco is amazing. I mean, all the respect in the world to Michael Michael Corleone, his role as Lefty is just unreal because I started just straight up writing down quotes after a certain point when I was watching that. Michael Corleone is the, I mean, he's the main character of the Godfather movies, but he kind of plays second fiddle to a lot of the characters around him. Like they have the cool lines they have like the important motivations and like the inciting events like Sonny is such a presence and Vito is such a presence around him lefty is that for donnie's character donnie you know he's the straight man literally he's the gi undercover and lefty is you know the one bringing him in and teaching him all the things about the monster world he gets more to work with with that character He's got one line really early that, again, emphasizes that idea of loyalty. And uh, where basically he's trying to convince Donnie that he's got his back or and trying to re- really hammer that point home and says something to the effect of, I've got two grenades in my house. I will blow up all of Mulberry Street before I give you up. <laughs> and the conviction with which Pacino says that is like, yeah. I can picture it. Yeah, oh, he, my word. He probably actually will do this. Yeah, and just like, and everything from his guy, he has, ironically, and it's one of those, actually, it's kind of, I watched Donnie Brasco and just in so many ways saw influences from other crime movies of the era when we go to the 90s. And I know we're going to continue to spend more time on Casino and Goodfellas. But I felt the reference to Reservoir Dogs when Lefty sniffs out the rat after they all get busted so quickly. And also in a similar fashion to Heat, the cop has the awful marriage. <laughs> Pacino's character, Vincent Hanna, and his wife are, we're passing each other on the downslope of a marriage, my third. And then the flip side of that is you see Neil McCauley with actually a very good relationship, other than the fact that obviously he's going off and secretly killing people and committing crimes. He does have a more positive relationship with the woman in his life. And Donnie Brasco does basically the same thing. His marriage is completely falling apart. Meanwhile, the relationship between Lefty and his wife is pleasant and is actually a kind of a source of solace as as, he, as the as Lefty and his wife are there for Donnie, and he visits them at least twice a week, as they say later in the film. Lefty's great too because he has he has such a heart. I mean, he takes Donnie under his wing and like makes him part of his family. You can tell that Lefty cares about his family, but. He has, you know, all these great ambitions of, you know, making it to the top of the mob and being like a man in charge. And he just, it's bad luck and it's not really for him. He's like a middle management guy. Some people are good, you know, 
at that level, but they, they just can't ever make it to the top. So I feel like you can identify a lot with that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that Michael Colleone is essentially a cold-blooded snake makes almost any other character played by Pacino much more relatable. But on the flip side, Michael Colleone is a cold-hearted snake. He's calculating. He's strategic. He, everything he does after the killing of Saluzzo and the police captain, everything he does is calculated and measured and manipulated to his advantage all the way through the first two Godfather movies. We're going to continue to ignore the third one. Well, yeah, I love love or hate when he comes back from Sicily and his wife there has been murdered and he goes and he finds Kay and he manipulates her into getting back together with him because he knows that it's going to legitimize him in the eyes of the world to have a respectable woman as his wife. And just you can tell, like in that scene when they go back and he's explaining, well, you know, I've been gone a long time working on my family's business, but I still love you and, you know, I want to marry you. It's just, oof. He's cold. I do really like Michael Colleon. I do as a character, but at the same time, I, I absolutely despise him. It is simply the because of the way Pacino portrayed him. Um, <laughs> but I do think Lefty might actually be a better character to have higher up at the table than maybe Michael. And that's just another great example of just to what extent the dialogue really just serves the film and serves the performances in so many ways because Pacino loved it. Like, I'm getting to deliver all of this authentic mob dialogue because of everything that was based off recordings. This is how this guy actually talked. And and Pacino brings him to life just so well. We have... We did De Niro. Lefty, we did De Niro. We did De Niro? Yeah, we did, because yeah. Vito. Pesci, we got... Well, so which Pesci did we decide on? We haven't decided. We really can circle back yet. to that. Which route we want to go, Casino versus Goodfellas? I think it's probably Dom or Tommy DeVito. I think the momentum from the movie carries Tom yes. Tommy DeVito farther. I think, objectively, Goodfellas was a better movie than Casino. In a lot of ways, for everything that Casino did right, it felt a little canned and a little bit like Scorsese was just repeating his success with Goodfellas. And honestly, a little bit too much on Goodfellas' coattails. So even though Nikki was just so much more screen time for Pesci and so much more unhinged, I think the the Pesci character's gotta be gotta be Tommy DeVito. No, I agree with that. So now that we've got our th- we've got three. So we've got DeVito. We've got Vito Corleone. We've got Lefty. The two other names I will throw out there that well, I yeah, think those are, are worthy our... of the seats of the table for our characters. Those are our big three actors as well. Right. Yes. yes. And then I think the the bottom two we can kind of hash out. Well, De Niro possibly gets a double seat. representation if we include Al Capone. And we already included the baseball bat scene, so if we don't include Al Capone here, I'm not too Getting mad that. about that. So we 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 said this before the mics were rolling, and I said that I think Al Capone doesn't actually have the staying power if it wasn't Al Capone. If it wasn't the most infamous American gangster ever, I don't think that the performance that Nero gives, and it is great, mm-hmm. would have the staying power if he was Joey Two Shoes on yeah, the street. Yeah, seriously, any other gangster. I literally. will play devil's advocate for you against what might have actually been my own pick, because we also wanted to at least highlight some of the amazing performances or or some of the characters that are iconic that aren't actually gangsters, and whether that's Kay and the Godfather films. 
or whether we're talking about someone like Malone. Sean Connery arguably gives the best performance in The Untouchables, and Malone is just so memorable. Well, Sean Connery yeah. won. Make not, sure when your shift is over, you go I... home alive. He won Best Supporting Actor in 1988 yeah, I thought so. for The Untouchables as Malone, as he should. I mean, again, the, the character is just so iconic. And definitely not a mobster, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Irish policeman. You wear Irish. a badge, carry a gun. Yeah, <laughs> And just the way that Andy Garcia tells some of the stories from that movie like there was a i think a sequence where stone has to answer answer a telephone call and garcia just missed his mark a bit so he wasn't in the right lighting they had to reset and and everything and connery is off off screen he's actually going to leave he has his golf clubs in hand they'd even probably been shooting a scene where you only saw him from the waist up so he was already wearing his golf pants and then had changed and was going to leave and on his way out is just going it's not hamlet (laughs) As he's trying to, I guess, inspire Garcia's performance. It just, oh gosh, no, everything about Malone in that movie. So perhaps Untouchables doesn't wind up with a seat at the table if we don't go with Capone. Another obvious one, if we want to give Goodfellas even more love, is Henry Hill. And you were talking about that before Yeah, so I actually do want to give uh, Ray Liotta a, a seat at the table for henry hill simply because he did such a great job bringing to life someone who did actually exist uh henry the whole story of goodfellas is based off of a biography of the henry hill character who was a real man and who did go into witness protection because he did inform on the mob and all of those experiences that happen in the movie are pretty much real life for what this man went through and what he did and and then got himself out of and towards the very end of the movie ray Liotta's character and his wife they are sitting with a judge who is going to determine whether or not they're gonna put him in witness protection and the actor quote unquote who was playing that judge was the judge that put the real man into witness protection and he said later about shooting the scene that it was like he was sitting in the same room all over again from the very first time he did it in real life. So I think that speaks very, very highly to uh, Ray Liotta's performance in Goodfellas. So I'm going to piggyback off of that and throw a curveball into the mix. I really like Denzel Washington's portrayal of Frank Lucas in American Gangster, directed by Ridley Scott. And Frank Lucas is also based on the real-life Frank Lucas, who was a mobster. He ran a heroin gang, and eventually he turned state's witness and put all the other drug dealers behind bars. But I love that character so much because Frank Lucas, he takes over the Harlem gang and he has this brilliant idea to import, you know, the heroin direct from Vietnam. So all of his heroin is pure. It's way better than anything else on the market. But the character is so smart, but also he has that he can, you know, do violence at the drop of a hat. There's a great scene with him and Idris Elba's character who plays another rival gangster where Idris Elba comes up and tells him, oh, you know, you owe me some money. I hear you've been moving some product on the street. He's like, pay me when you get a chance. And Frank Lucas is, you know, having his breakfast at a diner with his crew, which includes a lot of his family members that he's brought up from Georgia into wealth. And he lets Idris Elba walk down the street and he gets up from the diner, walks over to him on the street, takes out like a hundred dollar bill, stuffs it in his pocket and then just blows him away and walks back and sits down and continues finishing his breakfast There's also a great scene. His girlfriend buys him this 
super flashy, super expensive mink fur coat to wear to a boxing title fight. And Frank Lucas is very understated. You know, he plays down that he has wealth. He's not very ostentatious. And when they go to this prize fight, you know, they have front row seats. He's in this flashy coat and he is noticed by the corrupt FBI agent played by Josh Brolin, who's like, who's that fancy guy in the coat with better seats than I have? So then he stops him and is like, oh, you owe me a cut of your money. And the next scene we see is Frank at his home and he pulls out that coat and he walks over in front of his wife and he just throws it in the fireplace. Doesn't say a word and he walks away. I will say this because this is one thought that as we're having this conversation because we're talking about movies, not TV shows. And one of my favorite TV shows is Boardwalk Empire was the first spotlight I ever did for a storytelling breakdown. And that often when we see these stories told and Boardwalk Empire does an amazing job of this, you have Italian mobsters, you have Irish gangsters, you have Jewish gangsters, and you have the gangsters from the black neighborhoods as well. And if we were talking about characters from TV shows, I would be going to bat for Chalky White. So the inclusion of Frank Lucas, along with a largely Italian group or Irish group with Henry Hill, I mean, if we're looking at Lefty, Vito, Tommy DeVito, Henry Hill, and Frank Lucas, I like where that's at. Coming out of left field, but I'm not, I'm actually not going to argue about it. Oh, gosh. So, hey, that covers characters and we've covered scenes now i don't think any of these characters yeah they're not at the table but they're standing in the wings but clemenza and tom hagen from the godfather along with like all the characters in the the godfather are so good sunny yeah clemenza tom hagen for sure in the wings also michael because we didn't actually give michael yeah but he is a great character given we've given so much love to donnie brasco i'd say sunny black michael madsen is always just an air of oh, you do not want to mess with this guy. He just carries himself with such this kind of scary calm with most of his characters. And, I mean, of course, he's most well-known for Mr. Blonde and Reservoir Dogs. And Sonny Black has a similar energy without being quite as unhinged. I've got another one. Characters in the room, I don't know if Billy Drago, if you hear the name of that, you immediately think of a face, but Nitty, the mobster who kills Malone and Ness kills on the courthouse roof at the end of the untouchables. His face is just so scary. And the first time you see him in a car outside of Ness's house, and it's the first time we realize, okay, yeah, his family might be in very real danger. He also will be in the room. It, it, it's just, again, a character that's not in very many scenes, but every scene he makes, he usually kills somebody and he's so terrifying. I remembered who I wanted to put in the room as well. John Dillinger, Public Enemies, also Johnny Depp, but a very, very different and a little bit older Johnny Depp. Not quite a mobster, but a brilliant period crime movie in its own right. Not a mobster, though, so he gets in the room, I think. We can argue that if you want. He gets a foot in the room. He gets yeah. a, he, he gets in the room simply because of the character he was portraying, John Dillinger being the first Public Enemy, number one, giving the early FBI all kinds of hell for his entire career. And there's, I still, uh, <laughs> the opening to that movie is very interesting for me because my uh, my grandfather on my mom's side was actually a guard at the uh, penitentiary that Dillinger's in at the start of the film. The Michigan City State Penitentiary? The yes, one that indeed. he breaks out of at the very beginning of the film? Yep. Same, oh, nice. same one. And that's a perfect segue to start talking about actors because, again, before we got on the mics, we kind of were talking about, well, between Dillinger 
and his performance in Donnie Brasco. And Black Mass most yeah. recently. Yeah, Depp has an argument. He probably isn't going to wind up in our top five, but he's in the room. Oh, oh Depp, sure. Depp's got to be in the room. Yeah. I think so, too. John Dillinger, again, like I said, not actually a mobster because he was never associated with any kind of a syndicate. He ran, ran with the gang for a little while, but through the course of the movie and through the course of his career, his gang just kept getting killed, whacked by the FBI. It just kept getting bumped off. Really, he was the villain in and of his own self. He was never syndicated. And with that, we've moved on to actors. Yeah. And this is where things start to get a little bit easier because our top three is pretty obvious. Yeah. The top three are, you know, gold-plated, Hall of Fame, like, So really the argument with with actors and and maybe even directors has to be who is the Don? Who is the Don? Uh, It's De Niro for me. It's De Niro. Really? Yeah, it is. It's De Niro. Because, because, again, my recent rewatch of Casino and Goodfellas and just seeing him and realizing... He goes from Italian gangster to Irish gangster to Jewish gangster so well, and he plays them all perfectly. He also directed a mob movie. He directed a Bronx Tale. All right, all what's right. The, what, I see we, the point. Yeah, what's no, the counter the argument point. though? We want to hear actually it. Gonna, I was actually going to claim the original Don and and claim Brando, but I was going to argue for him at the table. A, so I, I agree with that. I have absolutely. a ton of argument other than he is Don yeah. Vito Colleone, and he started and typified that position so well yeah even though again not a ton of screen time as don Vito, but because of the godfather 2 and the extra momentum from de niro's performance as young don Vito colione i think marlon brando deserves the title the challenge now and i think we do want to put brando at the table which means we've taken up four out of five spots if the other three are de niro pacino and pesci fair at that is, point, is we've only Don, got one left. Is the Don a seat? Is he above a seat? We haven't really, with our collective list, we haven't really done a top five order. No, that's fair. But, no, that is fair. But we are now trying to figure out who that fifth spot is, and there's a few different directions we can come at this. I think it's James Can, Sonny, The Godfather, part one. He had an extra 45 minutes of footage that was unfortunately cut out thanks to a, a producer that didn't like him. He actually said to that producer, hey, you cut my whole effing roll out at the premiere of the movie. But Sonny is... Nobody who watches The Godfather walks away not remembering Sonny Colleone. They always remember Sonny Colleone because he's such a firecracker of a character. He's such a hot spur of a character. And even though, again, not a ton of screen time and not a ton of devotion to story, he is one of the most memorable characters in the, in the franchise. And James Can doesn't really have a ton of other mobster movie credits, or any, actually. But because of the way that he portrayed Sonny and how much he got into the character and his improvised scenes that were mostly saved uh, and kept, things like taking the FBI photographer's camera and smashing it on the ground and then just kind of throwing money at him, or bashing his brother-in-law in the face with a trash can lid, or the whole... You know, you, you, you want to whack a guy. You, you're not going to do it from half a mile away like your army days. You're going to do it up close and personal. You're going to get your, his blood in your brand new suit, and then you're going to go home, and you're going to have dinner with your wife. That, that's characters. I think that line's actually from the video game. I don't think that line was ever in the movie. There was a brilliant <laughs> video game that actually took a lot of James Cann's recorded lines from the movie and put them into the game, and his character is so much better in the video game. The video game itself wasn't great, but his character is so much better. And it is actually James Cann providing the voice for that character. Robert Duvall. I mean, we've talked to death about Godfather, but Robert Duvall is Tom Hagen. 
did Again, a pretty it's, killer job. Yeah, it's, it's a quality over quantity thing with both James Caan and Robert Duvall. And with one really solid role there, that that's quality over quantity. Yeah. And I know some of the other options that we could go with might have popped up in at least a couple places. Oh, fair. If not more. Yeah, I mean... Caleb, do you have any you want to jump in on? Because I've got a couple that I could I could start on. No, the only one, I don't think he's at the table, but I think he's in the room, is Jack Nicholson as Frank Costello in The Departed, I think, is... He's in the running just because he he has that sort of magnetic quality whenever he's on screen. You know, he draws he draws you you know into him and his character. But I I don't think he he sits at the table with these other greats. I think I potentially I don't know if this is one you want to make a case for at all. But when I was thinking about this setup, I realized it could apply in a couple places and maybe others that I'm not thinking of. But if we can find tie-ins between the post film noir kind of gangster rebirth period of Bonnie and Clyde Scarface, the Godfather you, and then also find that actor or actress again in kind of the nineties Renaissance of the movies. I know an actor who pops up in both places. Thanks to once upon a time in America and casino is James Woods, or I would make a case. Thanks to the Godfather part two and Donnie Brasco for Bruno Kirby because mm. he plays young Clemenza. And he's Nikki and Donnie Brasco. Those are both fair. Who is the old, the actor from the old gangster movies? You guys mentioned. I was oh, going to get to him we next. Men- yeah, we mentioned well, James he- Cagney. Yeah. We mentioned Cagney. Because we need before. a fifth, right? We do. And Cagney might be. Right Honestly, it's probably James Cagney. Yeah. I would agree with that because when we get to, and this might be, well, okay, unless, I think every, okay, I think everyone else that we've just mentioned before and very recently is probably in the room. If we do give that fifth seat to Cagney, it's also a perfect transition to talking about the movies. Cause there's one that I would consider putting on the movie list. We've not touched on any of the 1930s, 1940s mm. mob movies. Cause they're so romanticized and kind of campy, but also they give us people like James Cagney and uh, Bogart. yeah. And I'm very unfamiliar with the gangster. Like I don't, know practically anything about the gangster movies from the 1930s yeah. but my lens into this isn't recent either but i can talk about it for my lack of knowledge in that area i know the name james cagney like that's how much of a legacy he has his film legacy is right up there with humphrey bogart if not honestly more than humphrey bogart which was the the leading man for casablanca and amongst other things like the maltese falcon and the african queen and you know, a bunch of his movies i'm a big fan of humphrey bogart but he never really did a gangster movie Cagney did Mm -hmm. I think if you do go back and you look at some of Cagney's films you're going to see things that the 1970s and 80s and then the 90s renaissance all are calling back to I do think maybe he he earns his place at the table because of that even over my pick just still James can (laughs) (laughs) to sort of tie back to one of our previous episodes James Cagney is to mobster movies kind of what Lon Chaney is to monster movies. I'd agree with that. You can't really, they're so intrinsically tied into or the Lugosi. history of that genre. Yeah. Taking a look at our list, because I think I do want to use Cagney as the springboard to talk about a movie that we haven't talked about. I mean, the Godfather for actors, the Godfather cast is so stacked. It gets three out of five seats with De Niro, Pacino and Brando at the table. And then Pesci is kind of left to hold up the entire 90s renaissance era, which actually also does include a connection to Donnie Brasco because he was considered for the role of Nicky that ended up going to Bruno Kirby. 
<laughs> and just with the way the character is written and some of the interactions, you can definitely see it. These guys, they were so intricately interwoven with this film genre that it makes sense. Well, and they were intricately woven with the real life. Like Pesci grew up, you know, in a neighborhood where he knew Italian mobsters and like he was friends with them. Like people he went to high school mm-hmm. ended up in the mob. There's a famous story relating to Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons because Joe Pesci knew them. Like they all grew up in the same area. So he sort of helped with his mob connections get Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons like started and like helped them get going well that's the same idea as uh frank uh frank sinatra got mad about tommy fontaine's portrayal in the first godfather because it was definitely a call out to how frank got started 100 percent calling frank out i mean we can half jokingly say that uh frank sinatra might be in the room but (laughs) but also to that connection you know who else is in the room don rickles He's in Casino. He's the manager. Oh, shit. Our five for actors, De Niro, Pacino, Brando, Pesci, Cagney. Yeah. I really don't think we can say anyone else is at the yeah. table. That's the fun. No, that's, that's who's at the table. And we've mentioned who's in the room, but that's got to be who's at the table. So we've covered scenes. We've covered characters. We've covered actors. Now let's jump to movies. Yeah. I think... We- I thought we were doing movies last. Didn't we want to do directors? Well, I think movies is going to be easier than directors. <laughs> I think movies is going to extremely influence directors. Yeah, that too. Okay. From the movie, you well, are going to glean the director. Mm. Well, or or Probably. perhaps, or again, there's obviously going to be overlap, and then maybe it's like, hey, we did include them on this list, but we might not include them here or vice versa. Okay. Yeah. yeah, okay. I've wanted to springboard off of Cagney to talk about movies because I would maybe make a case for Angels with Dirty Faces. And I know the public enemy is viewed as like the quintessential gangster film. And you have that era is in such an interesting place, like the 30s gangster films in Hollywood, because the violence level and the content level is such that you could still play them on television today, probably without a heavy amount of editing. Like they're not going to be overly aggressive in their content that should only be geared for an adult audience. But they also came out before the established codes and censorship that would come later. So they were able to put content in some of these early gangster films that they maybe couldn't have gotten away with later down the line. And I remember seeing Angels with Dirty Faces on TV fairly early in life. I I probably was in grade school. And I just remember Cagney's performance sticking with me. I remember the end of the film... Uh, sticking with me just because I mean he's ultimately captured by police and cornered and tear gassed that's how they finally capture him and and eventually he's sentenced to die but the two main characters are Cagney's gangster and a Catholic priest and Angels with Dirty Faces is credited with being the first film that so many would follow suit in that there are often many Catholic elements in some of the greatest gangster films ever made. And so just being the origin point for that, I'd make the case for it being in in the room at the very least, if not ultimately in our top five. No, I, I like it. I hadn't even heard of that. I mean, it was part of that era that I'm unfamiliar with, but I love that. I think some of the top ones are going to be a little obvious, so I'll throw my maybe not so obvious pick in the rain, which would be The Departed. It's Scorsese's, it's, it's Scorsese's modern gangster movie. You know, he has... 
the renaissance of the 90s with Goodfellas and Casino. But then The Departed, you know, came out in 2007, and it's his, like, new take. And it's not quite as melodramatic as some of his first ones. It's a lot more grounded, and it's got an amazing cast. I mean, you have Leonardo DiCaprio, you have Matt Damon, Jack Nicholson, obviously. Martin Sheen is the police captain with his deputies Mark Wahlberg and Alec Baldwin. Good lord. That is also a stacked cast That's list. a stacked cast, and none of them are at our table. I don't know if The Departed makes it simply because none of its actors. Well, maybe it makes it like slot four or five. Possible. I'll, I'll seed that. I think, well, I, I would, in a similar way to how I put forward Angels with Dirty Faces, I think it's in the room. It's just a matter of whether or not we make it one of our top five. Yeah. And then the question really becomes, I think, by the time we've reached the end of this part of the conversation, does Scorsese have one, two, or three movies at the table? I think all of those are possibilities. The conversation we've had has not been overly kind to some of the uh, the actress performances, uh, just because again, but that's something so inherent with gangster films. They are so often sidelined. They're uh, very or male the, focused. Or, yeah, yeah the, absolutely. The actresses yeah. in gangster films don't really ever. I mean, Sharon get much Stone did an amazing job as Ginger in Casino, and I love that it was mentioned that Michelle Pfeiffer was considered for the part and didn't want to do it because she had done Scarface and felt that the parts were very similar. And then again, we also have Married to the Mob in the mix there. But there's The Departed is definitely an interesting choice there. And again, a possibility to get Scorsese a couple of films. But let's kind of establish what seats are taken. Godfather 1 and 2, okay. Is that two one seat done. or two? That's, that's two, seats. two we're, movies, we're two, seats. two seats. Okay. We, we got away with giving Vito Corleone one, but for movies, we got to give him yeah, no, right. it's gotta be they're in sep- They're in backwards order, I think. Number two, part two is number one. If we're and ranking part them, one yeah. is number two. Yeah, I, okay. I think that's fair. All right, all right. I think Goodfellas is the obvious third choice. I would agree with that. Yeah, it is. And, and here's where I'm going to make a case for a movie we haven't actually really discussed. And it, I'm going to make the case for Once Upon a Time in America. Ser- Sergio Leone. That is his. Now, the case I'm going to make is the director's cut or the European cut. I find this movie... I think it, it, at the very least, it gets in the room. I think it deserves a seat at the table because Once Upon a Time in America, when you watch the full cut, did a brilliant job of doing a period gangster movie without romanticizing anything. And in fact, it's hyper violent both towards nondescript characters like the police and other gangsters, and it's also hyper violent towards its female characters. And it shows a lot of things that. I don't think other movies would have done if it didn't do that first. I think Robert De Niro carries the movie. You get James Woods in the mix there. With that, I do think the movie deserves a seat at the table. When you consider the American cut, when it was released, flopped. It was it was horrendous. And that's the only version I've actually seen all the way through. It was horrendous. But then when you go and you go back and you consider the direct the directors of the European cut... So much more about the movie is fixed that it it got another resurgence and critically is it, it is highly acclaimed. So this is where just considering kind of the I guess logistical challenges that come with different eras. Obviously for movies with the Godfather Part 1 and Part 2, Coppola takes up two of the seats at the table for the films. And then we have Goodfellas and then we get Once Upon a Time in America. And even if we don't wind up putting... Scarface or The Untouchables, which the latter would be my preference in our top five for films, 
Brian De Palma for doing both of those probably easily makes our director's list. So maybe conceding the point there. Whereas something like Angels with Dirty Faces is a film that has great influence and features Cagney. But when I was going back through some of those older gangster films from the 30s, it was so hard to find a director who did multiple pieces. And I'm, I'm probably off base on that, but I was going through it. I was like, there's a different name. There's a different name. There's a, it was just movies were made differently then. And it's just interesting to see how like we associate so many of these iconic films now with a director's vision. And, and the fact that, because even if we didn't include Once Upon a Time in America in the movies category at the table, we would definitely include Leone, I think, for the direct on the director's side of things because the cinematography in the film is, is just unbelievable. Well, and I forget if you had mentioned this, but Humphrey Bogart is also in Angels with Dirty Faces. There you go. Yeah, I mean, just so we get so many great connections there. Also, there's a couple of actors that I feel we've forgotten, but I will mention them when we get to talking about directors. At that point, we have discussed five for a table. If we do Once Upon a Time in America, Angels with Dirty Faces, Goodfellas, and the two Godfather films. Scorsese only gets one entry, but he is represented. And, and, and you could almost, just with quantity of entries, if we do want to start talking about directors, he might be the Don. Scorsese, I mean, it's, it's him I, or Coppola. I Scorsese think it might actually be Scorsese because you look at Goodfellas, Casino, The Departed, did The he, Irishman. The Irishman. Let's say he did The Irishman. That was 2019. I believe so, yeah. So that's four. Coppola's only got three, one of which we don't like to talk about. Uh, De Palma sort of has two. Uh, that's really it. There's something about the monster movie where directors... They kinda, do it once they, and they, they don't do they it again. They kind of want to done it, you know? This is where I think we can go in a few different directions. If we want to continue to heap love onto movies that we've already given love to, in this case, Donnie Brasco, then Mike Newell is on the list. And I was really surprised when I went through and was looking at his credits because when I was watching it, again, very recently for the first time, and I was like, oh, Patrick Doyle did the score. And I was like, why have I heard that name? It's like, oh, yeah, we talked about him with the uh, Planet of the Apes films. And uh, he also did the score for Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Well, it turns out Mike Newell directed Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. <laughs> so just a weird connection there for one possibility on the director's list. But another couple that have come up already, at least their work has been referenced, if not themselves, Michael Mann or possibly Quentin Tarantino. This is circling back to Scorsese. Whether or not you consider Gaines of New York a mobster yeah. movie, it's it's Gaines, but it's it's pre-Italian mobster. I would give the tiebreaker to Scorsese. And again, I keep saying this because our focus is movies, not TV shows, but he produced Boardwalk Empire. Oh, yeah. That Just for having his yeah, hands no. there. Scorsese is, is I, think I think, the he Don. Is the He's Don. number one. He, he earns it. Coppola's number two for sure. I want Sergio Leone in as a director. I also, I mean, I, I got my wish with getting him in for the movies, but I want him in as a director. Uh, that puts him in at number, somewhere around number three. Uh, I think just because... I think it could be a number three because it, Once Upon a Time in America is such a statement film. He, like, he said what he wanted to say about the genre with that film, which someone like Tarantino doesn't do in the same way. Tarantino, I mean, he, he gives a different take on the genre, and honestly, Tarantino's films are only kind of mob movies they are though if i will say this as far as actors who are worthy of reference and partially because of tarantino's canon steve buscemi samuel l jackson and harvey keitel jackson's also in goodfellas and buscemi of course Borak empire is iconic again actors that we forgot that we can then kind of reference and bring to the table 
or bring into the room. <laughs> Thanks yeah, to Tarantino. We, we know who's at the table, but maybe it's a whole freaking crowd in the room. Um, and as it should be, there's just so much. I mean, you've been, you're looking at honestly, what I think is the quintessential American filmmaking style. We've been doing it since the thirties, the mobster gangster movie. And it, and it's gotten so much hype that men like Sergio Leone, who are not American and Ridley Scott, who's not American, have gone and really left a huge mark on it because of this weird and and kind of awesome obsession that we have developed with the mobster, the criminal underworld, the syndicate. Mm-hmm. Going back to, we've got four, four directors now? Yes. Yeah. So who's our fifth? Possibly five. Again, for all the love we're giving Donnie, Donnie Brasco, Mike Newell is a possibility. Mike Newell might honestly need to be on there. Yeah. And I like Michael Mann. Well, this is maybe a good part of the conversation. It's not a monster movie. Let's well, let's consider some of the films that are at the table, and let's consider those five kind of categories. Because Donnie Brasco, as we determined, already checked all of the boxes. Mm -hmm. So, for some of the directors who we consider at the table, what's a work that we want to look at, and let's consider some of those options or some of those things that might fit over. If it's Michael Mann, then it's Public Enemies. Yeah, if it's Michael's Mann, it's it's Public Enemies. But I don't think it checks enough of the boxes to get a seat at the table. Let's go down the list if we want to real quick. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, give me the list. Immigrants from the lower class. I mean, he he's from the lower class, but he's not an immigrant. He's, he grew up in Indiana. He's from Mooresville. Yeah. Battles against the cops and rival gangs. Well, that's yeah, the that's, there's yeah. lots of that. Central to the... Gang as a boys club and what happens to female characters. It does check that box. Checks that box. And loyalty to a brotherhood. Not really. They're kind of disloyal to it. It's kind of every man for every, himself. It is. With Public Enemies, it's very much a feeling of every man for himself. The only person that John Dillinger and shows any real loyalty to that doesn't get killed <laughs> but is Red yeah. and Marion Cotillard's character. And it does follow a significant chunk of time, but that's only four out of five. If it, if, yeah. if it, just by virtue of Dillinger being born in the States. Even though, you know, you have things, this is skipping to TV shows, like The Sopranos later, where mm-hmm. those characters are very American, yeah. but they still have that Italian heritage, yeah. or, you know, Italian, Irish, Jewish, all those outsider heritages, all those outsider backgrounds that are really central to, like, the the themes and the feel of, like, a quintessential mobster movie. Yeah, and if I can tie... The idea you were mentioning earlier, Stephen, about just the American gangster film and its resonance and its staying power and also tie it into The Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire. It's a form that we've seen evolve from the 30s gangster films up through film noir into the rebirth with the Godfather films and others in the 60s and 70s, then a resurgence in the 90s in film. But high quality television is the perfect place to tell those stories, and we've seen that in the last 20 to 30 years. Getting into things like Peaky Blinders, you get your Americans, you get your Italians. That's high-quality TV right there. I love Peaky. We you get, get we your, your, your lower-class Your lower-class immigrants. Lower-class citizen type. They hit on well, and they're, also all uh, these as well. They're Romani, Gypsy in that show. So yeah, they also took also the outsider too. box. There's yeah. also that, too. Yeah, they check all the boxes. And the other aspect with those that we will likely be covering in a later episode I mean there's so many amazing elements with the TV shows they also do while maintaining the dynamic they don't lose focus on their female characters well even something like Breaking Bad which is 
not quite as mob related as those other ones, but it's still dealing with, you know, a drug cartel, similar organization. Yeah, the prestige television era has been a gold mine for those types of stories. Looking at our tables, I think we've found our 25. I think we have our 25. Shall we recount the 25? Yes. Starting with the most recent, should we start with directors, work our way down? Let's do it. So beginning with directors, we have Scorsese, Coppola, De Palma, Leone, and Newell. Then going to movies with some obvious overlap, Godfather, Godfather Part 2, Goodfellas, Angels with Dirty Faces, and Once Upon a Time in America. Then going to actors, De Niro, Pacino, Brando, Pesci, and Cagney. For characters, we have Vito Corleone, we have Lefty, we have Henry Hill, we have Tommy DeVito, and we have Frank Lucas. And then going back to scenes, we have The Baptism, we have The Arrival in Ellis Island, we have The Baseball Bat, we have Funny, and we have The Basement and Donnie Brasco. And yeah, those are some amazing lists. Here on the lesson. <laughs> and if you have made it through this conversation and haven't seen any of the movies that we have just talked about in varying degrees of detail, if we mentioned a director or a movie or an actor's performance in our lists, strongly encourage checking them out if you haven't already. There were some things from these lists that I had seen a long time ago. There are other things that I had to do homework on very recently, and all of it was incredibly enjoyable. If you haven't seen them, go watch them. It's enough for you can't refuse. Two disclaimers. Our opinions on all of our movies and actor choices are completely our own, do not reflect the views or values of anyone else. Second disclaimer, these are not kids' shows. Oh, no. So being the guy in the room who does have kids, if you are thinking about watching one of these, do it when they're asleep. Please. These are bad men who do bad things, and for some reason we find it really entertaining to watch.
What you just heard was Poor Wayfaring Stranger from the album The Ragtag Bunch, live at the Tiger Room. The Ragtag Bunch is my other project. Uh, It is a group of singers and friends from the Fort Wayne local area that get together to drink and sing good old-fashioned Irish and Celtic-inspired folk tunes. Our home base is found downtown at J.K. O'Donnell's, and we got a chance to record that album, which is now live on Spotify, at the Tiger Room, also in downtown Fort Wayne. Please give us a listen and look to catch us around the fort if you're in the area. For our spotlight this episode, we're joined by Kipway Cooper, the host of Empower You Podcast. The topic, One Night in Miami, the 2020 release directed by Regina King. Two former denizens of the USF Music Technology Program will begin shortly. Here's Ben and Kipway. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this spotlight portion for this episode of Storytelling Breakdown. Throughout the second season, of our show, we have done some crossovers of sorts uh, with other podcast creators from in and around uh, our community, as well as kind of from all over the place over the course of this last season. Joining me on the mics now uh, is a fellow podcast creator, the host of the Empower You podcast, as well as a fellow University of St. Francis alumnus, Kibway Cooper. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It is good to see you. And for our spotlight today, we're discussing a film that, as I was digging more into it, I did not know this, and I realized, oh, this is the theatrical directorial film debut of Regina King, who is amazing. So with that, we're going to dig into One Night in Miami. What speaks to you so much about the film? First of all, this is an amazing film. If you have not seen One Night in Miami... You should absolutely watch it. And the content, dialogue, the bandwidth of emotion and relevance that these characters easily and and skillfully kind of dance over is just it's just brilliant. The film is based off of a screenplay uh, by Kip Powers, right? And it's directed by Regina King. It is an account of a meeting, uh, of a hangout with Cassius Clay, who just won uh, the heavyweight title at 22 years old, Malcolm X, who is on the verge of leaving the Nation of Islam, Sam Cooke, who has started his own uh, record label and is now starting to produce other artists and really pioneer this idea of owning your own masters and creating you know, tons of revenue from your music creation as an owner, not just a 
artist, which was very unconventional at the time, especially for black artists. And then also Jim Brown, who is, of course, a monumental sports icon who is learning that even though he is this massive sports icon, he is still just a pawn in a grander money making scheme. And he's not really seen as a real human, right? He's just a prop for what the National Football League is benefiting from. He's a cash cow for uh, lack of better terms, which is what you see a lot in the NFL, right? They praise you because you're so brave and because you do all these athletic things. But are you really seen as a full human? Are you really seen as 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 someone who gets to stand for something and express themselves as a person. And as you think about um, different movements that have happened in sports and things like that, the moment athletes become aware or conscious or decide they're going to use the social capital that they have for a specific cause, whether it be racial inclusion, police brutality, gender awareness, it always comes back to the money, right? You know, you work for this team, and so therefore your talent and your voice should be unleashed to us. And so he's battling with these things as well. And so the movie takes place with all of these conflicting and combustible life occurrences that are all uh, kind of happening all together. And what I think is so brilliant about the film is that it really allows you to peek behind the curtain of real people. It doesn't matter how great you become, right? There are no chosen ones. Everyone has a genius level skill at something. And when you really dive into who you are and and into that talent and it starts to create an entire reality around you like for Cassius Clay with boxing or for Sam Cooke with his music or for Malcolm X with his ability to inspire and lead people it kind of takes on a life of its own but what is very important is how is that we understand how our narratives how the things that we put ourselves into how the lives that we live publicly are impacting us, one, on a private level, but then two, on a social level. Even at the height of their popularity, they're still questioning things like, am I really cared about? Am I really thought of as human? Do I really get to express the things that are true to me? Or am I always supposed to tout this company line? And what is it going to cost me to be fully myself? It's just a brilliant commentary on what people who who we may look up to, right, in whatever field that you're in, there's an icon in that field, there's a pioneer in that field. And I think it's a really great way of understanding people are still people. And if you're not really mindful of the direction of your life and of the things that you go through, you can really begin to lose track of who you actually want to be in pursuit of whatever your goal is. All of these characters are black. And so from a perspective as a black man who is building his own brand, who is known for doing certain things, who's been you know, podcasting and creating, you know, have over 75 episodes recorded and all these crazy things that I never thought would happen or that I just didn't realize could happen. It's a really great way to dial it back a little bit and think about the impact you have on other people and who you 
really want to be? What do you want to be for yourself, for your community? What you want your voice to say about you? Who am I really? And what do I really stand for? And how much am I willing to pay in order to make sure that's what people know and remember me for? One thing I saw recently talked about this idea of the gap. And this is something I think you and I have probably both experienced, especially given, and I mentioned our mutual connection to the University of St. Francis at the start of this, that's still in the relatively recent rear view. And when you are building up your skill sets in a profession, in a craft, in an art form, you're going to run into this time where your taste has improved and you know what good and better and best in your art form and in your Mm. field of choice looks like. Right. But you're not there yet. (laughs) And you're looking at someone who is a master of that craft, someone who is perhaps a legend in their time, either still living or in the past. And you look at what they are doing or could do and you get this sense of imposter syndrome. And, And I love that one night in Miami kind of shows, Hey, even at the top of their game, that's a sense you have to continue to grapple with. Even if you are at the other end of reaching this, this mountaintop, this peak, you are the master of the craft. Yeah. In some ways, those emotions and those experiences that you had in the gap are going to stick with you. Absolutely. And there's so many different ways to express yourself. There's so many different ways to be, right? And so your imposter syndrome will tell you that there's only one way to do something and that if you don't do it this way, then you're not being um, a real whatever, you know, insert your own title there. Um, but one of the things I really thought was interesting about the film was after uh, Cassius Clay, before he changed his name to Muhammad Ali, after he won, he went back and he wanted to celebrate and he was on the verge of coming out as converting to the nation of Islam. He was battling with whether he wanted to do it or how he wanted to do it. And 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 so you have Malcolm X's character who's encouraging reflection and, and the intellectual prowess that he was known for. And you have Sam Cooke who's like, yo, let's just like go out, have a good time. You got Jim Brown who's like, yeah, yeah, let's like go chill. You know, they constantly are butting heads because they're going about their lives in different ways. And they're getting into arguments about who's better for the culture, right? Who is demonstrating blackness, black excellence in a true way. And so they go back and forth throughout this entire film. And one of the things that is so interesting to me, at one point, Malcolm X, he's played by Kinsley uh, Ben-Adir. He says all of their talents collectively, Jim Brown's, his, Sam Cooke's, um, Cassius Clay's, all of their talents should be used to win the war, which he's speaking of black independence. He's speaking of black liberation and things like that. What occurred to me and what I really took from that, there are a lot of different methods that are used to accomplish a goal. Everyone can't be a hammer. You need an entire toolbox. You need the screwdrivers and you need all of the bolts and you need all of these different varying uh, purposed pieces of hardware or tools to create a certain thing. And when we are attacking a problem, whether it's social justice, whether it's a problem in your individual industry, we have to understand that there are multiple ways to get the job done. 
and that all pieces are necessary. Think about putting together a puzzle. Every piece can't be the corner piece. There have to be a lot of other pieces as well, and they serve a very significant purpose to making this entire picture work. And so uh, when you talk about imposter syndrome, I think that's one of the things we want to understand about imposter syndrome is that tells you you have to be a corner piece. And that's not true. You could be so many other things and have uh, your own methods of, of, of accomplishing your goals without being exactly like someone else and you still be super relevant. And so you have all of these characters who are masters in their own fields butting heads about the routes that everyone is taking in order to create impact, in order to impact the culture, in order to liberate. And it's just amazing. And so um, I strongly recommend that. And I strongly recommend everybody look at themselves as not one thing. We are a infinite being. We take up so much more space than we really realize we do. I was reading a book and um, they said, to remember that you are a soul with a body, not a body with a soul. And so your spirit and the way that you show up in life is absolutely relevant. It's just about finding what works best with that. You know, you shouldn't be so tied up with how it looks. And so that was one of the things I observed about uh, the Malcolm X character. He's very, very rigid about what and how everyone else should show up in order to advance the voices and the freedom and the economic growth of black people, of those who are oppressed. While he's incredibly correct in many things that, you know, Malcolm X was very, very prolific in his speaking and his intellectual ability to understand complex problems. However, there are more than one way to do something. And one of the things that you see in that film is a collection of different ways to get a job done. And I think it's beautiful because it doesn't minimize anyone. Um, it really just encourages, to me, it encourages all of us to find what we do super well and use it for good. And I can hear why your podcast is called Empower You. Kibway Cooper, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for, for uh, allowing me to be on your platform. And I hope... All of your listeners are enjoying themselves, and uh, thanks again, Ben. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahoski joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. We've made a pair of podcast appearances in the last couple of months. We spoke with my friend and coworker Julia Meek for her WBOI art-centric podcast, and we appeared on the Deus Volt podcast after having Reverends Steven and Dan on our show for a spotlight back in April on the Road Producers of Star Wars Story episode. We gave Julia the scoop on introducing Stephen as a new host of the Storytelling Breakdown podcast. The three of us spoke with Deus Volt about the movie The Kingdom of Heaven, and you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Same with WBOI Artcentric. We'll provide links on our social media as well as in the show notes for this episode. Stephen, thank you for being here and for providing the drinks for our conversations about all things mobsters. You can't do a mobster-centered episode without a good glass of whiskey or wine. In this case whiskey our podcast is hosted by john dawkins and wayne chow productions our social media coordinator is ella abbott thank you for having us everyone has a story these are some of our favorites and this has been storytelling breakdown
WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>